back to another episode of Jonah and Ben Play Board Games with Friends. I am Jonah, joined yet again by my co-host Ben. Hello, Ben. Hello, hello. How's it going? And we said that we would have Bill on the show, but Bill is hard to nab. So we have a substitute guest for Bill today. He goes by Ron. You might know him as the one that got away for Ben. Uh, Ron, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm a a poor substitute for Dr. Bill, but uh, I'm here and happy to be here. We're happy to have Uh, you. We'll see see if he keeps saying that at the end of the show. (laughs) (laughs) So Ben, what have you been up to lately? Um, not a ton this week, to be honest with you. Uh, mostly wordling every day, as you know. Uh, yeah, I've jumped on. I've jumped on the train like so many other followers. Um, yeah, Jessica uses Wordle to wake up every morning. Yeah, I mean, it's been fun. I've enjoyed playing. So, for those Ron, that do don't you know, Wordle is that. Uh, oh yeah, go ahead, Ron. What's that? I, I didn't hear what you said. Let me, let me turn up my. I'm not. I'm not a veteran here. I'm not a veteran podcaster like you gentlemen. Do you do the wordle every day? I I don't wordle. I've seen the wordle, and I think I tried it, and I wasn't good at it, and I was like, "This is dumb," and I moved on quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, for those that don't know, wordle uh, is. Well, it's now owned by the New York Times, which is interesting. But it's basically the the old school game show lingo um, that was on the game show network. So, you know, it's very original. Um, but basically, you guess a five-letter word, and you just put in letters. And if the letters are in there, they get highlighted in yellow. And if they're in there in the correct position that you guess them, they get highlighted green. And then you have six guesses to try and figure out what the five-letter word is. So I play Wordle like every day. So that's, yeah, that's been Wordle. And it's and been what? It's been two weeks, right, John? Score? Two, one, three. Uh, so okay, so my best score is two, but my best tainted score is one, and the tainted score came because I was in a disc golf uh, Discord for MVP Discs, which is the brand that I throw uh, most often, and they have a disc called the Proxy, and someone posted, "Oh, Axiom Discs really helped me get the Wordle this morning." And I was like, uh, okay, so I just looked at their five-letter discs, and I just picked one, and I got proxy. So I cheated, but other than that, it's two. So, yeah, yeah, I think two is my best as well. Uh, well, Ron, since you don't wordle, why don't you tell us what you've been up to lately? I hear you came out of unemployment recently? Back on oh, your feet? Uh, well, um, yeah, I guess uh, I got a new job. Um just starting. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, <laughs> I'm working for the, the fine institution of Portland State University. Um, I'm very excited to, to be there. It's, um, it's actually fantastic. It's a perfect position for me. I'm actually enjoying it. So, um, and I'm looking forward to um, continuing there for a while. So, yeah, pretty exciting. Awesome. Sweet. Well, Ron, we're just going to jump right to it. Since it is your first time on the show, you yes. need to tell us. Be gentle. What? Be gentle. Okay, okay I'll try. I'll give you some softballs right now. Uh, what game got you into the hobby 
and what type of games do you like to play these days? Ooh, these are not softballs. This could be like a, an hour long. This could be the podcast right here at the end. We're doing it. Um, <laughs> well, let's not do that, though. Um, how far back are we going here, Jonah? G- give me some as context far back here. As you want. Oh, goodness. Uh, there's like Risk or Scrabble count. There's like spades and like. I mean, if that's what started you on your enjoyment of board games, then yeah, that counts. <laughs> um, well, I'll tell you, I'll go back to the modern board gaming because, I mean, I, I've always liked Risk. Uh, uh, my wife and I, Misty, she, um, we actually did some Magic the Gathering back in the early 90s, so that was pretty cool. Uh, but modern board gaming started for us in 2009. We had... Um, it was a Tuesday in September. It was a Sunday <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> That's right. Um, the dog was barking outside. No. Um, well, I mean, it's it's pretty simple. We had children. We were we didn't like going out with them because uh, they were monsters. No, they they were lovely, but um, they did restrict your movement. So we were looking for a new hobby, and uh, I stumbled across this game called Catan. Oh, and I and I I actually hesitate to say that because, um, anyways, we 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 got into it. We really enjoyed it. Um, that kind of exploded from there into like Agricola, and I I found this Craigslist ad for modern Euro board games, and uh, it was down in Orlando. I was living in Jacksonville at the time. And they were like, hey, let's meet up at Cool Stuff, Inc. And so we uh, we went down there and I picked up Arkham Horror, uh, 1960, The Making of a President, and Battle Lore, I think, all used. Wow. And uh, brought them up and that was like our real introduction to board gaming. And, you know, Catan just kind of fell off and now I absolutely loathe Catan, but... And now we have the wall behind you. Um, and now we have the wall. <laughs> and then I had this obsession to um, collect the top 100 BGG board games. And so that took me about eight years. I finished in 2019. But since it was a moving target, it <laughs> it came out to almost the top 200, right? Because it kept shifting over and over. Yeah. Um, and so I finished like in roughly 2019 and then I was like, this is really dumb. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, then I stopped and, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of my board gaming journey and history. Love it. And what type of games do you like to play today? Today it's, uh, mostly, um, you know, I, I, I actually like a, a wide, wide range of uh, board games. So, um, and it really is, you know, what genre or how many player counts or, or stuff like that. But, you know, I, I really enjoy the economic games. Um, I like the heavy games as well, you know, like the Lacertas and the Arkwrights, um, City of Big Shoulders, stuff like that. <laughs> um, but I have a deep, deep appreciation for those really simple games as well that are like really elegant, like Concordia um, or um, um, 
some of the older stuff uh, like Princes of Florence and stuff like that. So it's pretty wide ranging, but um, yeah, I, I tend towards those medium heavy games, I think. You're in good company here. Yeah, <laughs> I'd say. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's me. Ben, why don't you lead us off with the games that you've been playing recently? Because Ron and I are probably sure. going to have similar lists, especially since mm. I was at Ron's place last night. <laughs> Sure. Uh, so since it's been two weeks, um, right after we recorded the podcast, I played two games of Clank Legacy with Greg. Um, so we have played, I started on game two, so we played game, we played game two, so I think we're through four now. Um, so the next time we play, we'll start, be starting at five. And Ron, I don't remember, were you in Clank Legacy? Uh, no, I played Clank. Uh, I, I enjoyed it, and uh, but I did oh. not get into. Yeah. Legacy. Okay. I didn't know if you were part of the "We Threw This Game Out" crew that John oh, had been uh, talking I, about. I, yeah, <laughs> I, I'm not a legacy type of person, so gotcha. I, I've discovered that over time. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm still. I'm, I mean, I'm still enjoying it. I. I'm not a hundred percent. I mean, I enjoy the game, and I like Clank. At its core, I think it's fun. This is the first time <clears throat> in a while that I've played Clank. So I like Clank at its core. I'm still not sure how sold I am on competitive legacy games as a whole, I guess. Um, I think I like the idea of building something together as opposed to we're layering rules on top of this for you to go against each other with. Which is fine. I don't, you know, I, I am enjoying it. And the only other, I think the only other competitive legacy game I've played was Charterstone. And I definitely enjoyed this more than I've enjoyed Charterstone um, so far, at least. Um, but yeah, we played two games. I don't know where we go with it in terms of like what things mean at the end of the game. But there's abilities during the game to earn like accolades, I guess is what they're called. Or um, you can get like, awarded like a little title at the end of the game if you like do something specific and so far i have like three of the four games titles i'm not like winning the games but i've got like three of the specific call outs so i don't know if at the end of the game something big is going to happen i guess we'll find out uh, it's but, a yeah, it's so, like I mean, employee of the month or something right that's what it is yeah yeah and i've got like three of the four so far so i don't know what that means for later in the game but I mean, I've enjoyed it as a whole, so I, you know, I, I don't, I'm not not enjoying it. I think I prefer cooperative legacy games, but I think the way that this one's progressing has been pretty neat. Um, the only other part that I'm not 100% sold on is I don't know if I love when legacy games like tease things that are upcoming that you haven't seen yet before you even know that they're coming. So on your character boxes where you have like your progressions, um, like mine, for example, and it's right from the beginning, so everyone's going to see it, but mine said, you know, I have two boxes to check off if I do it, where it's like defeat a Dran agent is like one of the things, but you don't see Dran agents until, you know, after a couple of games, depending on what you do in the game. I don't know if I love that like, some people are still sitting on their achievements that they need to complete 
because they haven't been introduced to the game yet. Whereas other people had it from the beginning. And I don't know if I love that, but other than that, I mean, the game's been fun. We've, we've been enjoying it. Right. Cause that kind of gives you a little spoiler while also reducing the options that you can take advantage of. Exactly. Right. Cause other exactly. people will have four things that they can try and do. And all of a sudden you have lost exactly. one of those. Yeah. Yep. But we did just find out in this, in the very last game that, um, you can actually check off more than one of those boxes at a time in the same category. We didn't realize that uh, until, you know, just after this last game. So, you know, some people would have actually like finished a whole row by now if we had followed that correctly, but it hasn't really affected too much yet. Um, But yeah, I mean, I've enjoyed, like I said, I've enjoyed the progression. I think the, the map expansion is really cool. I know in legacy games, you expand the maps and things. Um, I think the way that we expand the map is pretty neat. Um, Though I will say the stickers do a horrible job of lining up and I'm very meticulous about how my stickers line up and it's bothering me, but I'm trying my best. So with, with, uh, with the stickers, so you're you're permanently yeah. altering the board, or do they have some type of system by which you can kind of pull them off, or like you know keep using the game? As, as far as I know, and Jonah, don't spoil it for me if we pull things off at some point. <laughs> right now, it's permanently altered. You're putting down new things onto the board, and they stay there. So, yeah, but I mean, I I thought that was neat about legacy games. Like even when Jonah and I were playing Pandemic, like putting things on the board to permanently alter it, I think is cool, which is why in a cooperative one, I feel like we're building something, but in a competitive one, it's like, well, here's another pathway for somebody to jump out in front of me. It's like, how can I get around that or beat them to the punch type of deal? So that's the thing, because I forget exactly how it works in clink legacy, but I think sometimes a, uh, a new area gets added to like the bottom of the map. And if someone yep. is at mm-hmm. that spot or right next to that spot, I guess I should say, then that uh, new map addition kind of only benefits that one person because they are there and able to take advantage of it. So it doesn't feel great if you're like on the other side of the board and that comes mm-hmm. out. And then I just also will say as far as uh, changing the map of legacy games, for me, I think that's one of the reasons I loved Pandemic Legacy Season 2 so much. Season 2 is my favorite of the three. And in Season 2, you start out with North America, and like 70% of the map is blank. So you really don't have a lot to the map, and you build the map out throughout the course of the game. And it's really cool because by the end of the game, that means like 80% of the map is new and was not there at the start of the game. So there's really a huge sense of exploration and not knowing what's out there, which I liked. Yeah. And I mean, I like that about season zero. It wasn't exactly the same, but you know, the stickers that we still were able to add to the board and then, you know, certain aspects of that game I thought were really interesting concepts to add to the game. So I don't know. I've enjoyed most of the legacy games I've played so far. So Mm -hmm. it's been fun. Just one more note about uh, Legacy Season 2. What I also really loved about the addition of stickers to create the whole map is the fact that when you put a new sticker on with new cities and whatever, you actually get to draw the lines between the cities and you decide what is connected to what. 
you just can't have lines intersect. But what that means is, you know, with every legacy game, your copy is going to be different from everyone else's copy. But the fact that you also have different city connections in season two, I think is really neat because it's totally different because you have different routes throughout the board. Have you, um, have either of you tried uh, Risk Legacy? I have friends who played it, but I never got around to it. Yeah, that was our that was our introduction, and um, we tried to do a all nighter like we're gonna finish it. We're gonna go through every single chapter th- through this, and I think we got to about three or four in the morning, and we were like, nope. And uh, and then that, by the way, that was the end. And it it part of the the legacy portion of it was it, it felt like the leader was always kind of at an advantage. You know, the person I've heard won that one. Last piece of that. And then, um, so I was, I was, <laughs> I was crushing Misty at my wife and, uh, and, um, and then we had our friend who was playing with us as well. And towards the end, it just wasn't fun. It wasn't fun for me. I, I don't enjoy like when it's so, you know, when it's, it, it, the advantage comes to, you know, the leader and it's, it just doesn't become fun or challenging. And so that was one of the legacies we did. And then after that, I, we, we picked up pandemic legacies, but we never cracked them open. And, um, sadly I moved them along. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. I've never had the advantage of being a leader. So, you know, (laughs) if I won a game, maybe, but I'd never win. So, uh, so far, no advantages for me. But I can see how that could be an issue. I've I've not really heard much about Risk Legacy at all, to be honest. So that's that was all new to me. But it probably wouldn't be one I would pick up regardless, just because, like I said, I think the cooperative ones stand out for me a little bit more. The only thing that I have heard about Risk Legacy is the exact problem that Ron just shared. I have friends from college who played it, and they said that the person that was in the lead just stomped on everyone else every game after that. And it's just like, mm-hmm. where's the fun in that? You know, I guess part of risk is that it's a competition. But if it is no longer a competition after the first game or two, you know, what what is there to it? Yeah, yeah and it, it, games are about fun, right? Like, if not, if everyone's not having fun, it's just, I don't know, it doesn't yeah. seem like why continue. Well, it, and case in point, you know, Risk Legacy ended that night forever. And, you know, and that one got moved along, you know, so. Yep. Yeah. Ron, what have you been playing lately? Or can you tell us a game? I'm going to tell you about one that I think you're interested in. You're going to tell me or? uh, I'll tell tell Ben too, but I know you're interested in it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Let's see. So I played a five, I can't remember, five or six players. So last Saturday, we played Imperial 2030. I don't know if you guys have played that before. Tell us all about I've never it. Never played it. Oh goodness! Welcome to my world. Um, <laughs> Imperial 2030, and uh, I don't have all uh, the specs in front of me, but uh, it's a game designed by Mac Gertz. He uh, designed Concordia, um, and it's one of my uh, favorite games in that it simulates kind of the world order. So you play as an investor who is uh, basically buying bonds from countries. Um, And if you control the bonds of that country, the most bonds of that country, 
um, then you control what it does. So you control whether it's going to tax or whether it's going to buy troops or whether it's going to move its troops or if it's going to invest or anything like that. Um, and so it's it's one of those games where uh, all of the uh, country or all of the countries are actually held by the investors. Um, so even if it's a three player, all the countries will be controlled or if it's a six player, it's still all controlled. If you don't control a country, you are a Swiss banker and you get to invest in these countries. Um, you know, you can buy bonds and as long as you don't control the country, um, you can just continue to be the Swiss. So it's, it's a really interesting tug of war in that, let's say you control two countries. Um, let's say you control Russia and China. And so remember, you're an investor and you don't really care about the countries. You just care about making money off of these countries. And uh, so you can pit their forces against one another in order to reduce their troops so that way when you go to tax, they pay less money and the country gets more money, which means you get a bigger bonus. Um, super fun game, uh, very engaging with everybody. You, you get, some people get tied to their countries in which they shouldn't. And that's that whole piece of uh, simulating like the world order and that these investors are, they don't care who they invest in or what country they go to or how they manipulate. It's how they actually can best position themselves in order to make the most money. And that's what it is at the end of the game. Um, it's whoever was able to manipulate a certain country to the end uh, gets a, a very high multiplier for the amount of bonds that they hold. So um, really super clever game. Um, been playing it for years. Um, and it's just one of the go-tos for a six player because it plays fantastic at six. I was yeah, going to ask if cool. the money is what won the game. And is six your preferred player count or the best player count, you think? Uh, I think so, yeah. It's uh, five or six. Um, because w without it, then you don't get to be a Swiss banker very often. And that's a fun aspect in that you, you're trying to get enough bonds where you're when a, another player goes to uh, collect like interest on those bonds, you get paid, but you're not controlling it. So it's one of those things where you can kind of really kind of manipulate the, uh, the game state by buying bonds, but yet not controlling a country. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Six player, I would say is the preferred state. Yeah. Sweet. How long does it take or how long did it take? Uh, that one, <laughs> well, it depends on the players, right? Um, it, that one took us a while. It was like three and a half, four hours, you know, but you know, you're eating and you're talking and, uh, but it, a good game should possibly, you know, be about two and a half, three hours. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. It's one of my I'll have to try it. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I'll, I'll put a die on it next time. Oh my God. <laughs> we're gonna get to that um a couple of weeks ago because like we said we haven't recorded in two weeks i played a game called squaring circleville and squaring circleville is a beige game it's like if hansa teutonica was made again it just has very little 
color. So it's a Nick. But it's a Nick game. It is a Nick game, and in fact, I wanted to play this exclusively because Nick told me he was interested in it like a year or two ago. <laughs> so uh, I played this with Matt and Bill. And Squaring Circleville is a game about Circleville, Ohio, where the city planner made the town into a circular town, and then the people lived there and said, this is stupid, can we actually have some right-angle streets where we can know how to make turns? And this game is a uh, little version of that. So you start with this big round map, and you are replacing, or you're like filling in sections with right angled pieces basically and it is a mix of area control and interesting action selection uh there are some cool bonuses to it uh the part of the game that i found really interesting is the rondelle action selection method so to try and paint a picture for our listeners if you picture the top of a beach umbrella with a bunch of different colors and triangles that is the action selection method. So let's say it's blue, then red, then orange, then yellow, then blue, then red, then orange, then yellow. Uh, so at the edge of each of these pie slices is a stack of discs. And you have a little person that you move around the pie slices. You can move one or two open spaces. And if you have a person and then there's an empty space in front of that person, and then there is an opponent's piece, and then another empty space. You can go either one spot ahead, or then three spots ahead, because that is your second open space that you can go into. And when you land on this pie slice, you take the action that corresponds with the color of the pie slice, and the action that corresponds with the top disc in the stack that matches that pie slice. So you only have four actions that you can choose from, and they are just in different orders and combinations based on the pie slices and the stacks. So, go on, Ron. Oh, no, I continue. I, I have an interesting comment on this. Okay. Uh, yeah. It was a really neat game, and I thought it was a cool action selection method. But sometimes it's tough because you really want to do one thing and another thing, and they just aren't paired together or you're desperate to take a certain action and there is not an orange action available, you know, either by spots or by discs on top of the stack. So, um, first of all, you had me at Rondell, the end. <laughs> uh, I, I really like games with uh, Rondells with the action system. So, uh, one of the things I didn't mention about Imperial 2030 it was one of the first games that had a rondelle that um, Matt Gertz developed for a game. And that's the action selection system is mm. a rondelle as well. So, yeah, that sounds fantastic to me. Yeah, so I liked Swearing Circleville. As with every game I've ever played, I want to give it another go to see my actual thoughts on it. Uh, initially, I think it was okay. I wanted a little bit more to the decision space. Maybe I just wanted more interesting things to happen during the game than what did happen. But it was a cool game, and I think it also should have been a little faster. And if it is faster on my second play, I'm sure I would like it more as well. 
Makes sense. Usually, if games games last too long, it detracts from the experience. If if it's just going too long because it's going too long. If there's like always some sort of interactivity along the length of the game, I don't mind. But right. if you're just like sitting around waiting and like, okay, now what? That's when it kind of hits a wall. And that is a perfect segue to my next game, which is Dogs of War. I played <laughs> Dogs of War last night. And I think we talked about Dogs of War like a year ago. So Dogs of War is this neat little game where there are warring houses and you are a person who is basically putting your strength behind one of these houses in each war. So there will be a face-off between House A and House B, House C and House D, and House E and House F. They all have names and colors, but don't worry about any of that. And you can put your person down on a spot that gets you a reward for house A, and then also a plus five to move the Moncala bead five strength in that direction. And there's a little more to it than that, but that is the basics of the game. Uh, that game last night took way too long. Uh, in my experience, I think Dogs of War is like an hour-long game, and that took a little over two hours. But that's all right. Some people take a long time to think on their turn, and some other people, like me, just have to deal with it. Yep. <laughs> I don't well, was, it, was, it, was it you, Ron? Was it your fault? No, I, uh, you know, I, I, I got to say, I've played, uh, maybe not like, uh, we play Dogs of War maybe twice a year, because uh, it's a great five-player game. Like, it's like one of the quintessential five players, and... Um, I've never seen it. It does always feel a little bit too long to me, but it always seems to go over two hours with anybody I've ever played it with. So mm. I, I, boy, you'd be flying if you were playing it in like a sub hour. Cause it's, I don't think it's a small game per se. It's not a whole lot right. going on, with it, but it's not small, you know, per se, but um, yeah, there, there was a, there was a 10 minute turn in the game and, Oh, to me, that is like I don't know what you're thinking about for ten minutes in that game. Well, I mean, winning, right? Well, if you already have a person down, then you already have fewer spots available because you can't have a person on both sides of, you know, for both uh, opposing houses. So your decision space can shrink. Yes, Ben. Um, you have something to say. Oh yes, um, I I don't know why I'm drawing a blank and not remembering. Were was it you, myself, and Patrick that played Dogs of War together, or was yes. it me, Patrick, and somebody else? Okay, that was. I mean, I enjoyed it, but I don't know if I could do that game for two plus hours. Either. Yeah, I mean, it was fun. I enjoyed the game, and I'm sad I actually had the game and then I sold it without realizing that you like couldn't get it anymore. Um, and I was like, mm-hmm. I wish I kind of had it, but also. It's not one that is necessary. I feel like it's one of those games where if I had it, I wouldn't want to get rid of it. But if I don't have it, which I don't, I don't feel the need to go get it. Yeah. That makes sense. I'm also only on the game anyway. I think it's neat, but not my type of game. It is Kayla's type of game, that's for sure. Yeah, it's fun for that social interaction of you know, making alliances with people and bribing and, 
you know, trying to table talk and, you know, right. this will benefit you, but it'll benefit me, but not benefit Jonah, which is the goal of the game. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, you crushed everybody though, didn't you? No, Kayla no? and I tried to team up at the end and, uh, we got a house that, so there were two houses that were fighting each other, and one house had their strength or support up to 15, which is the maximum possible. And Kayla and I had strong interest in the opposing house, and uh, we actually were able to, so I, I think I did a good move in this game. So it was, they were at 15. And I had a tactic card that says Betrayal, which lets you go to the opposite side to do something. And while it was at like 12 or 13, I went to the I went to that side with the Betrayal, took up a spot, because there are limited spots on each side, and just put a plus one down. Because I knew that it was going to get bumped up a lot, and I was trying yeah. to limit the future actions of the other players to move that. And then once that happened, with our final two actions each of us kayla and i put our people on the other side and slammed it that way like 18 or 19 mm. spots to make it win for that faction and yeah. you know doing that got me an extra i think eight or ten points that switch so it was definitely the right move for me and for kayla i just didn't realize that kayla had as many shields as she did maybe who knows it was the right move for both of us and she ended up winning by a point which is great oh that's fantastic Those are the yeah. yeah yeah so she got first and i got second and it is definitely because we both teamed up to swing that battle yeah as well you should right yep that's great well yeah dogs are what's next for you ron you know, you uh, talked about Squaring Circleville, which I, I think that's the night I played Blackout Hong Kong. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Blackout Hong Kong has been sitting on my shelf for about, oh gosh, about a year and a half, two years now. And I've been always wanting to try it. And it's by Alexander Fister, I believe. Is it Fister? Yeah. What did it? Yeah. So really enjoy all his games. Um, so I wanted to give it a shot. And there's a Rondell. So how could you not? Well, right. <laughs> um, so Rob and Jason were very gracious, and were you know. So we we decided to just choose it, and we were going to play it, and that was awesome. Uh, so we set it up. We got everything going, and and I, I I'm not even sure I can describe the whole game. Uh, what I can describe it is like the most themeless. <laughs> euro i have ever played in my life and you know board games for me they don't have to have a theme like i love yinch it's like one of my favorite abstracts um however in a game like that i really enjoy tying in the mechanics with the theme and and trying to make sense of the game you know when i'm playing it you know if i take an action it, it's leading to this I, in this case, in Blackout Hong Kong, you're trying to light up Hong Kong again. It had some cat catastrophe. Oh, is that what sort. it is? I think well, I so, yeah. And so you're like the emergency management, and you have like all these these individuals, uh, you know, medics and, you know, electricians and all this stuff. Uh, but honestly, I, I couldn't tell you. It was so 
theme list that it just didn't <laughs> matter whatsoever. So it, it, I thought the mechanics were really interesting, um, but the lack of the theme, which is really unusual for me, but it just made it blah. And yeah, I, I thought I'd bring that up because I think theme in games, I guess, does matter. Yeah, um, you know, I, I feel similarly about not requiring a theme to enjoy a game. But I think at a certain point, if the mechanics can't stand for themselves without a theme, you might just not know what you're even doing. Like, it's hard to know what actions you're taking or what's happening in the game without that tiny bit of theme if the mechanics, if the mechanics don't just make sense together. Yeah. So maybe that's what I you tie, were feeling. Yeah, and I tie that into also teaching and learning games as well. I use that as a mechanic in myself. Just to, you know, when you tie a picture or a process together, um, I'll tie that in with the mechanic. And I, I honestly, I don't, I don't know if I could tell you anything about like how to play the game. <laughs> uh, it was just me just going through the motions, you know, kind, you know, kind of going through the process. And and I play so many games that it's like, oh my god, that's two weeks ago. Then forget it. If it did, if something didn't incredibly stand out, it's like. The end. Yeah, are you selling it? Yeah, I, I think I am going to move it along. Yeah, sadly. But. And it took you guys a while to play it too, didn't it? It did. It was, oh gosh, yeah. It was It was longer than Squaring Circleville, right? Like over three hours? Yeah, over three hours for a game where you don't even know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I kept looking over at Square and Circleville, like, "Hey, that looks really good." <laughs> yeah, I just yeah, remember four so colors many good things. I just remember hearing so many good things about that game. So it's a surprise to hear that it kind of didn't really connect in general, like thematically or anything like that. Blackout Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah I feel like I heard like when it came out, everyone was like, "Oh my god, this game is so good." and things like that it was like hyped up but you know hype isn't always you know doesn't always mean the game's good i i thought it was clever and i thought if what i remember of it it was the mechanics were fine and they flowed very well it's just i i just couldn't tie anything to it and um that was we kept talking about it throughout the game and um yeah yeah, it was it was too bad. Yeah, I, I'd heard good things to, about it too, which is why I really, really wanted to get it on the table. So I'm still incredibly happy I got it to the table. But yeah, it, it, that's another one that's yep on the conveyor. Out it goes. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, next one for me. I mean, pretty simple. I have I have three games that were repeated uh, that have been played since. So. First one up is Azul. I don't know if we need to. Still not on the, as you call it, the fun side, Jonah. Um, but one day I'll get to play that side again. Um, but we'll see. Uh, we'll get there. Uh, but yeah, no, it was a lot of fun. Azul's always fun. And again, it's on my 10 by 10 So, you know, it's not like I'm forcing myself to play things on my 10 by 10 But if it's there and I can quickly bust out a couple of games, why not? Um, and then following that is uh, was a game of Juicy Fruits. Um, so that one was also fun. I'm still trying out a few different strategies. I have not yet done ice cream, at, like at all. 
Um, so I know in Juicy Fruits, as we said, you can collect different, you know, fruit tokens. And at some point you can add ice cream, little ice cream, like the, the movable ice cream carts. Yeah, that's what they're called. Uh, ice cream <laughs> carts to your board. And if you move those around your board, um, you can craft ice cream, but you need to have the required ingredients before you can craft ice cream, which are various fruit tokens. Um, my brother won pretty big in the last game we played because he went for ice cream and he was the only one who went for ice cream. And that's like just three points, essentially. If nobody's contesting you for ice cream, it's essentially three points. So um, I got pretty, I got, I wouldn't say pretty close because like I said, he, he won by a good bit, but I got fairly close by taking a lot of the available end game scoring edition tiles because there are a few in the game that give you end game scoring. So if you clear a coastline, you get an extra four points per coastline that you clear um, in the game. That's a good one. I always try and take that if I can, but a lot of times Ashley takes that one before me because she likes that strategy. Um, and then uh, I also took, there's like some, some of the purchasable tiles have little forks and spoons on them. I guess they're food related is what they're trying to go for. Um, and you can get four extra points per fork and spoon on those tiles as well. So I kind of crawled back a little bit at the end because I bought both of those and I did a pretty good job of clearing my coastlines and buying new tokens. Um, but he ended up winning in the end because he just spammed out of screen the whole time, which is, you know, again, uncontested. So it's a perfectly valid strategy. And I've also seen him lose when he's gone for ice cream. So it's not like that wins all the time. Um, but that's just a fun, quick game. Uh, and then just, I'm going to just really quick talk about the last one that, uh, the last one was uh, final girl. So this one is going to get a little bit more exposure, I guess, because it's, New, and I haven't talked about it yet. Um, Ashley and I played three games of Final Girl. I know it's a solo it's a solo game, but we played it cooperatively, which I think is totally doable because it's just decision space choices. So um, where do you want to move somebody? What cards do you want to choose um, to play that round? Things like that. It doesn't need to be played solo. I would say more than two is probably not fun, but two players is totally a valid way to play Final Girl. Um, and the first game we played and we lost like immediately, like on the first card, very, very difficult game. And I, I said the same thing when I tried hostage negotiator, I lost like six games in a row of hostage negotiator. Um, but we were playing, our first game was against the poltergeist in like Creech Manor is what the combo was called. And uh, in that one, it has special rules where you're trying to save, you're trying to save a girl. You're not trying to kill the killer because in the other ones, you're trying to kill the killer. Um, but in this one, the ghost cannot be attacked. because It's a ghost. You're just trying to escape the house with uh, a young girl who lives in the house. Um, and the first card that came up for the enemy, because there's a terror phase or like an enemy phase, they draw terror cards. And they add like mechanics to the game for that turn that tell you what the villain or the enemy will do. Uh, and the ghost attacked us for, and in, in this game, there's D6s. And when we are rolling, ones and twos are failures. Threes and fours, you can discard two cards to turn them into successes. And fives and sixes are successes. But they do have the little numbers on the dice. So you obviously know which side's one, which side's six, etc. And the card, the terror card came out and said, roll a die 
the monster attacks you for the number on the die. And of course, Ashley rolls a die and rolls a five, and our final girl has four health. No. So literally one turn. Um, but what's neat is they add they added like a little um I mean it, it it's obviously in the horror movie, there's that trope that like double tap the killer because they're always gonna like sit up at the end and come back for like a final, you know, last breath type of thing. Um, and you you get a final health token that if you ever take your final, you know, damage, you flip the token over and three of the nine final health discs will have extra health on the back to let you like come back to life for like a second breath. But of course ours did not have that in the first game. So we just straight up died um, one card in, but luckily it was an easy reset. So we reset and we played it again, same combo. And we won that time. It was a lot of fun. And then the third time we went to what they consider the, the base or the starter setup, which is camp happy trails, which is literally camp crystal Lake. Um, they're very clearly, you know, riffing off of horror movies that exist and just changing names, which is fine. Um, but it's, uh, Camp Happy Trails and Hans the Killer, who's supposed to be Jason. Um, it's like a mix of Jason and Leatherface, essentially. Um, and that one was a little bit more difficult. That one we had to kill Hans the Killer, and he's very, very powerful. So he was like, smacking down like there's other people on the map so you're trying to run around and you're saving other victims you're trying to kill the you know kill the killer save victims because when you save victims you can power up your final girl um so if you save enough you can do like an ultimate final girl power essentially which is like you know makes you more powerful which is really neat but the more victims the killers take out and they don't have any defense they just one attack and they're dead um the, there's a bloodlust meter is what it's called. So the killer gets more powerful so they can move further attack for more. Um, and they bring out like, uh, I think they were called dark power cards. So like the further up the bloodlust track, you get the more powerful the killer gets as well. So you kind of want to, you know, weigh, do I attempt to kill the enemy sooner or do I try and save victims and prolong this, but not allow them to get more powerful. Um, and Hans, we let Hans get to the top of the bloodlust track uh, and he was just smacking us around the whole time. Um, so we ended up, uh, we ended up dying again. Um, but that one took a, a good bit longer. We knew we were going to die. So we actually cut it a little early because we, this time we did get a final breath. Um, so we kind of came back to life, but we knew we were going to die because Hans still had like 12 health left and we had two. So we just, we had to go. So we called it. But um, I know I had mentioned in the past that Ashley's, new place has that like lounge area with like all the tables and the games that we went to play at. And we finally figured out streaming music to their speakers because they have like streaming boxes. So we were playing like horror movie soundtracks as we were playing the Sweet. game and stuff. Yeah. It was, a, what was that? Set the mood. Yeah. We set the mood. Ashley's giving me hints in the background of what we would, what we did. <laughs> I can't remember every time, but yeah, we set the mood. Uh, and <laughs> it was kind of funny because some people walked in while we were playing the game and like the music was going through the whole building and it's just like horror movie music. And they were like running in and they're like, we probably freaked them out a little bit, but uh, no, it was a lot of fun. And uh, I really enjoyed it. I I still, again, I know I mentioned it before. I still don't love 
that a solo game has eight individual boxes and takes up, you know, a half a Calax cube. I think it's kind of pointless. I think they could have a much better storage solution. But after playing the game, I do think that the magnetic boxes are very neat and thematically it fits because they're essentially VHS-sized boxes and they look like VHS boxes. So thematically it fits because they're each considered a feature film and you grab you know, the core box and then you grab whatever feature film you would like to play. Um, and that's kind of how the game's set up. But no, I really, I really enjoyed it. I think we're going to play it a little bit more tonight. We're going to play again tonight after, after we're done. Um, but I, I really liked it and I'm looking forward to trying it again, seeing if maybe we can win this time since it's so hard. So, yeah. And Final ben, you, you said that, uh, there are like multiple killers you can choose from. So is that like the way they kind of do the levels? Like, you know, the... yeah. So there's, let's see, like I said, there's eight boxes, seven of them are feature films and one of them is a core box. Okay. So there is, you know what? Let me just the box is at my feet. Let me just open. Let me just open my game bag, and I'm gonna pull out some boxes and see what's worth. Give me one second. Let me go get. Let me go get this bag. I'm gonna carry this into the room, and I'm gonna open it up because this is the easiest way for me to remember. But yes, so there are two final girls per box. Um, and then within each box of the final girls, there are, there's like a location and a killer. Uh, and so there are seven different killers, seven different locations and like 14 final girls that you can play as. So let's see core box. Hmm. And then there is, so this was the, the Creech Manor. So Creech Manor is the poltergeist is the killer. Uh, Camp Happy Trails is Hans is the killer, and on the cover, those are the two final girls. Hmm. Uh, and then there's also Inkanyamba at the Sacred Groves. It's like a, a holy ground. We actually looked at that one. That one looks a lot of like a lot of fun. Um, and then there's the Carnival of Blood, uh, and you're fighting Geppetto, and he's like a puppet master, so he's got little like puppets that you can fight. And then this one is the biggest ripoff of them all in my mind. Uh, there's Dr. Fright on Maple Lane, which is very much <laughs> Freddy Krueger. Uh, and that's actually it. So it's actually one, two, three, it's six boxes. I can't imagine five, so owning a solo game of that size. That's crazy that it's in that many boxes. Like I understand why they did it and it's cool yeah. for style points and all that. But holy cow, was that a lot of stuff for one game? Yeah, and I said the same thing yeah. during the Kickstarter. I was like, this is too much for a solo game. But also, now that I found out, like, it can be done co-op, so it's not as big a deal to me. But they are coming out with a storage solution, because they did just run Season 2, a Season 2 Kickstarter. So they are coming out with storage boxes, so both seasons will fit in one Kallax cube. But to me, it's still a lot for a solo game, because it's still a solo game. But, you know, I think it's neat but if not a little unnecessary. But yeah. There's a lot of options. All right. Yeah. Ron, what's your next game? Yeah. 
Oh gosh, um, I'll talk about a uh, a game that we just played recently. Actually, last Monday we played Struggle of Empires. Mm. Uh, uh, my goodness, this one is a Grail game that's been sitting there for a while. Uh, big box. Was that your first play? From... Yeah, that was my first play. Oh man! So the way you were talking about it last night, I thought you played it five or ten times. I really enjoyed it so i I have a little bit of excitement about it because um it's one of those older games it's from martin wallace actually from back in the day i think early 2000s so 2004 yeah it was re-implemented uh deluxified by eagle griffin and uh yeah so it'd been sitting on my shelf for about a year and a half two years i think i got it at a black friday sale um my friend Patrick uh, also owns a copy of it. So it was perfect. We were like, this is, it's great when two individuals own the game because there's more likelihood it's going to get played. There's more incentive for right. us to put it on the table. So uh, got it out. Um, finally got to play it. It is a world type of, uh, I don't want to say conquering, but um, you play as one of the. Oh, gosh. Um, how do you describe this? Uh, it's when they were going out and uh, colonizing all of the world. So it was all the great powers um, like, you know, Russia and Great Britain and France and Spain. So there's six countries that you could potentially play. And actually, I think I believe seven countries. Um, the interesting thing about this game is that um, kind of like Imperial 2030, all of the countries are always going to be all in play. So, uh, for example, if you're at a five player, you'll have two non-player countries. Um, and those can kind of be manipulated through this really clever system. Uh, in the very first phase of the game is, is you make an alliance. So it, it will be three versus four countries, essentially, in this alliance, you know, out of the seven countries. And the, uh, the clever thing is, is that you do an auction for it. So the auction, that's the very first phase of the game, is, is you're determining who is going to be on the alliance and how. And you get to kind of manipulate which countries are in the alliance against you or, or with you. So, for example, if you're you know, trying to take North America um, and someone is you know, potentially going to mess with you there, you make it so that they become one of your partners and they cannot attack you for the rest of that round. So they consider uh, each of the, the game is played in three wars. So three like, like segments of the game. Um, and you'll do this alliance three times, you know, throughout the game for each of the wars. Um, once you do the alliance, you just, you have uh, five sets of actions that you can do. Uh, and within those actions, there's two actions that you can take during your turn. So, and it's your basic kind of, I don't want to call it a dice chucker, uh, but you do roll dice for it. The clever portion of the battles is, is that when you roll the dice, you take the difference between the two dice. You don't actually add them up. You, let's say you roll a five and a two. That means you have a power of three. You add that to whatever armies you have on the board. So let's say you had two armies. Now you have a total of five. And so that's your, you know, that's your power going into the battle. And you'll do that against, you know, both sides will roll the dice. Um, you can 
get allies. So during that alliance phase, whoever is allied with you can ally with you know ally with you during a battle. Um, and frequently, you'll want to bribe them to try to you know mitigate the odds uh, when you're actually rolling the dice. So I always like a game where you know I, I like the fact that there's a little bit of that fog of war with the dice. Uh, because that, that mimics real life and it simulates real life when, you know, in battle. Um, but at the same time, there are things that you can do to mitigate those, those dice rolls. So, and that part of that is, is, you know, getting like a special building, let's say that helps with your battles or, um, getting an allies, you know, to, you know, help fight with you. So it was, uh. Really, really clever. It was long, though. It's roughly around, I think we went about three and a half hours on this. It's four hours. Yeah, um, the box think, says three to four hours. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's definitely long, but I think you can get it. You know, we moved along at a pretty good clip, especially for a first game. We're all looking, you know, we're still looking up rules and trying to figure it out. Um, but yeah, it was fantastic boy i enjoyed it so that that was that was good to see a, a kind of a grail game come out and get to play that yeah i'll have to try it have you played and i'm sure the answer is no ron but have you played nemo's war it's a solo game i have not i have not i looked at it and i, I yeah yeah i still wish i tried it so i Before tried I ben's copy when the pandemic started, because yeah. if there was ever a time for me to try solo games, it's at the start of a global pandemic. 100%. So uh, the reason I bring it up is because Nemo's War also had yeah. the, uh, I keep wanting to say mod because of math, but the the difference between dice rolls as a like power. So in Nemo's War, you're you know, upgrading something and then you roll a die and the difference between that die roll and whatever this other number is that you had, I haven't played it in a year and a half, so forgive me. But it's the difference between those two is how many action points you have. So there was the cool uh, changing of what you can do based on the rolls. And just you talking about the difference between die rolls in this reminded me of that. Because I've never seen any other game do that, where it's the difference between two rolls does something for you i've always just seen roll this do that yeah 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 and the, the other clever thing about that with um struggle of empires was if you roll the seven um you lost a unit so it didn't matter if you were the defender or the attacker if you rolled that seven you know if you were the defender especially if you lost and then you roll the seven you lost two units but if you're the attacker you would just lose one the, the clever piece out of that is, is, of course, you know, sevens are like the most likely thing to be rolled out of two dice, right? Right. So, yeah. So it was one of those things where you would, you, that's kind of like that attrition piece. So um, you're trying to factor that into your whole strategic plan of, you know, like, great, I won, but I lost all my guys, you know, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Super clever. Like, really, really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, definitely a, a keeper. And I, I bought it because of that whole sweet spot of five. Again, having five-player games is really challenging or finding yeah. those really good ones. And that one, um, yeah, I was really glad I picked it up. But it was a lot. Jeez. Um, yeah, an yeah. Eagle Griffin Deluxe game doesn't tend to be cheap. Yeah, yeah. That's Not true. even a little bit. But no. they tend to be Deluxe. 
They are, yeah. It, it, and it, the pieces were great. Like the whole thing, the whole um, production was was pretty beautiful. So, and I, I'm a sucker for maps. I, I like to see the maps. So, yeah, it was, makes sense. They, they did a beautiful job. Yeah. So that was uh, Struggle of Empires. Um, I have. Are you in, Are you in on? Are you in on Weather Machine? I, we we played it. We we tried. Oh, it. you did. I tried it a couple times actually. Um, I, I'm interested now. And um, it, I I hate to say I I, I didn't back it. I, I and I'm a, a huge Lacerda fan, and I I wonder if I'm going to regret it. If maybe the table mm-hmm. presence will make it. Uh, but on you know TTS, it was just okay for me. I just um, I I didn't think it was it was all that which is really sad you know i'm still in for a dollar but i saw a lot of like it doesn't feel as connected as his other games it was just kind of like go into this column and do something and but there's not a whole lot else going on is kind of what i had read but i'm in for a dollar we'll see i don't know i'm gonna watch a lot more about it yeah I, uh, I'm in for a dollar, but I actually, yeah, I did a dollar too. Yeah. Cause I'm like, well, maybe, uh, cause you know, the completionist, like, right. Like I want to have all the list games, but uh, at yep. the same time, I, I, you know, the shelf space, like, you know, is shrinking yeah. as it often it does. Um, yeah. Yeah. Do you want me to talk about any other like games? You want to keep going here? Uh, I have a couple that I'll run through quickly, and then we can throw yeah. it back to you and Ben. Uh, so I'm out. I'm done. I got no okay. More I will be very fast then. Uh, <laughs> the first one I'm going to bring up is one that I actually played with Ron and Actual Bill, uh, and this is a game called Joraku. So Joraku is, for lack of a better explanation, Brian Boru Light. It is an area control game with trick-taking. Um, and the way it works is you play a card and other people have to follow suit if they can. But no matter what suit people play, the highest number wins. And the highest number wins. And that person who won then has like a, a mini dominance check basically in a region and whoever has the most strength there gets three points, second most strength, two points, third most strength, one point. Uh, and then there's just this kind of map of seven regions. And when you play a card, you can put some ninjas out or you can move your people with that many action points, which is kind of cool. So, you know, sometimes you play the number two because playing the number two lets you put ninjas in region two which is great. And sometimes you play a higher number, not for the region, but for the action points, which lets you move your people around and fight the other people on the board. Uh, So Jiraku has a cool little mix of uh, area control and trick-taking, and the points for the regions, there are three rounds, and the scoring for each round changes. So round one, you really want to be in region six, because that has the highest score for that round. Round two, you want to be in region like two or three because that has the highest score for the round. And then at the end of round three, you want to be in round in regions one and two because those have the highest scores. So there's this really cool flow from one side of the map to the other on the game. Uh, and Ron, I want to hear your thoughts before I share mine. Yeah. Uh, 
I was pretty tired right then <laughs> at that point, but I, I will say I'll start out with the production. I thought it was really cool, the production. And I, I really appreciate these uh, smaller games that are in these, like, uh, I think it was that square box that was like a weird box shape. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the production was really beautiful and I, I really appreciate like, especially Japanese art. So, um, so that kind of drew me into the game right away. Um, and I, then I enjoy, you know, use, utilizing different mechanics, like like cards in this case, to kind of manipulate board states. So, you know, especially with area control. So it, it kind of is like Brian Boru in that sense. Um, but definitely like way, way lighter. And um, yeah, with just different kind of, you know, things kind of going on. Um, I enjoyed it. I, I liked it. I don't know if I want to own it um but uh if it if it came up for sale and i saw it i i'd I'd buy it um yeah i I enjoyed it overall yeah so i also liked it but i didn't love it and i in fact messaged bill to see if he wants to buy it and Mm -hmm. i will see what he says about that because yeah i liked it but i didn't love it and i I am different from the two of you where I want to like really love every game I have. And if I don't love it enough, I'll just sell it to someone who might want it more. So we'll see if Bill wants it, but uh, I'm glad that I got to try it. I thought it was a cool game because a lot of the trick takers we've been playing lately are just these like neat small ones. So it was cool to try something a little meatier, but not quite Brian Boru, just this like middle ground of trick taking games. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't have a ton to add about the game because obviously I didn't play it, but I think it's funny that you brought this up because I just literally just read about this for the first time today on Reddit, like this game. I heard really? it mentioned for the very first time today. Yeah. What were they saying? I saw Why it was brought up. It was it was just it was in like somebody's list, and I think they were talking about, um, oh, if I recall, they were talking about like competitive trick takers versus. It was like a comparison between trick taking games and ladder climbing games. And they were making like oh, such a granular, gosh, yeah. like a granular distinction between. They were like, "Scout is a great ladder climbing game," and someone's like, "What's a ladder climbing?" And they're like, "Where you have to play a card higher than another." I'm like, "That's a trick taking game." <laughs> like, they, but they were like, "It's true that a lot of ladder taking games are a trick taking game." I mean, it was the first time I ever saw that this game mentioned it, so I think it's funny that like you mentioned it now. So the trick taking discord that I'm in actually has two different channels for trick taking games and climbing games, even though everyone on it says that they are pretty much the same thing. I mean, it, it is different because in scout, you're not following suit, you're beating it, but following suit is kind of the traditional trick taking idea and having to play something higher is different from having to play something that is the same. So, you know, in Joraku, if I played a blue five and Ron only had a blue two, but also a red six, he has to play the blue two. Mm-hmm. So because of that, I guess in my head, thing. anything, but they're anything so similar, take, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, I guess, I guess for me, anytime you take a set of cards off of the table that are in a group and then you take them to the side and however many of those you've got give you points, that's a trick taking game. So is war a trick taking game? Probably. It's like I don't know, I haven't played in a while. Right? Like the original deck builder. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. War is the same as Candyland, where once you shuffle the decks, the outcome is already known. You have no agency. 
I saw some comment on Reddit recently that was saying, I don't know why people say war is a game. You don't make any decisions the entire time. It's just an activity. It's flipping cards for fun. And anyway, fun. Jiraku, we played that. Uh, very, very quick run through of a game night. Uh, I was over at Ron and Misty's on Wednesday night for the two-headed beast of Lagrangia being played side by side. I did not want to play that. So instead, I had a two-player extravaganza with Brad. Uh, so we played Battle Line, which I know Ben likes. Battle Line went well, as it always does. We played Yinch, which I don't think Ben has played. It is an abstract game of the GIF series, which is just this dude made some games called the GIF series, and they're all just these weird letters, like Yinch, Y-I-N-S-H, Tsar, T-Z-A-A-R, Dvon, D-V-O-N-N, etc., etc. I've heard of all of those. I don't think I've played any of them. Right. Uh, Yinch is relatively... Right, yeah. It's basically Othello. It has some differences, uh, but also people say Yinch is the best of the series. I like it but I still want to try Tsar. Anyway, Yinch went well. Um, I also got to try Lost Cities for the first time. Lost Cities is a two-player Reiner Knizia card game where you are putting cards in front of things, a.k.a. Battleline. So it's different from Battleline, but it felt pretty similar to me. You are going on expeditions on these five different colors, and on your turn, you play a card, and then you draw a card, and that's it. If you go on an expedition in a color, you are committing to it, and you need... So the cards are just 1 through 10 in 5 colors, and if your cards at the end of the game in front of a color sum up to more than 20, then you get points equal to the difference between your score and 20. If your points do not sum up to more than 20, your score on that color is your difference, but negative so that was pretty cool. Then there's the added twist that your cards have to be played strictly increasing. So if you start with a 6 on the blue pile, then you better hope you have the 7, 8, 9, 10, or at least 3 of those to actually get more than 20. So that was pretty neat. I was glad to try it. We played it 3 times because Ron said if you don't play it 3 times, you're a chump. And we did not want to be chumps. <laughs> By exact words. Yeah, exact words. Uh, so that was pretty cool. Uh, and then we played one of Brad's own designs. So Brad has a bunch of funky designs that are all a good time. And I'm always laughing when I'm playing them. So it's great. I talked about Beat the Bookie a previous time. Uh, and that is like a little horse racing betting game or something. So when Brad said he had brought a game of his own design, I said, break it out, let's give it a whirl. So out comes a deck of cards that uh, is called Frosty Douche. So we played that, and it is a game where you have a bunch of guys in a bar and you are trying to get their numbers slash give them your number. I kind of forget. 
But the way it works is uh, there will be some people out there. So I'm just looking at my picture from last time. And the people were Stefan, Philip, and Chad. And each person has qualities. And those qualities are just numbers. They're just points in a few things. And those qualities are smart, rich, funny, buff, romantic, sensitive, outgoing, handy, and hung. So that is the type of guy that you're looking for. And what you do is you have to go and speak to these people. And after you speak to these people, you learn something new about them. For instance, Stefan is expected to marry his cousin and also consults. And when you learn these things about these players, you well, about these people, I guess players might have been the right word for that too, um, you get to see their points in all of these different categories. And you have some secret categories that you're hoping to recruit guys with those uh, points. Anyway, it was fun. It was very silly. Brad and I were... Uh, doing some role-playing with the character names and pretending to have some fun backstories for them. So that was great. Uh, and that Sounds was my two-player extravaganza with Brad. Always there was a lot of laughter. I didn't realize what they were playing. I haven't seen Brad for a while because of the uh, Omicron. So it was fun to see him. It had been over, gosh, at least two months or so since we've yeah. gotten to play games with him. So. He always brings over something uh, funny of, of his sort. And we do our die rolls and he'll put his die on his game. And more often than not, his game pops up and we're like, here we go. And, uh, <laughs> but they're, they're usually pretty fun. So, you know, it's, it's, and I, I like, I enjoy learning new games. So um, that would have been really a funny one. So it looked really well, actually uh, pretty polished. Actually, it looked like the cards were pretty nice and stuff. Yeah, it was cool. It was definitely silly, but it was a good time. And, you know, you were all playing your game over there, and you hear us talking about, um, what, what do we have here? We're talking about Chad, who is with the band and has his pilot's license, or Steven, who has a wine cellar and is a little bit psychic. So, you know, mm. they're just hearing us talk about these people with all these attributes. and uh, Sounds like fun. It was a good time. I, I'm trying to farm like a simple peasant nicely and bring things to a market and they're like doing stuff over there. We're picking up dudes in the bar. Yeah, exactly. It was awesome. Yeah. All right. Over to you, Ron. I only have one more to talk about and then we'll do the, the listener submitted questions. Yeah, I'll do a, I'll do a quick, I'll do a quick two. Is that all right? Of course. I just did a quick Uh, five. uh, (laughs) uh, LaGranja. We did uh, on Wednesday because we really wanted to try it out before the Kickstarter ended, uh, which I think ended like 48 hours later. Um, right. Bill and I both own it. Uh, we wanted to show um, Rob and um, Jason because they were they were really interested. I don't know. I had to like really, really pull that out. Um <laughs> And they were really interested because they might have wanted to back it as well. So it was it was important that we try to give it a shot and see. And uh, because the, the Kickstarter is, I think it's like ninety dollars just for the the you know the basic portion. And then there's a 
La Granda or La Grande, which was about $170. So, it's the El Grande La Granja, right? Yeah, exactly. So La Granja, uh, pretty, I want to say pretty old, but I think it came out in the mid-teens, um, like 2014, 2015 or so. Um, really clever game in that you have multi-use cards. So you have a central board that you're kind of going to the market with. So when you produce your stuff on your farm, your player board is basically your farm. And in that farm, you have fields on one side. You have like uh, your wheelbarrows or how you're going to get things to the market on one side. You have like upgrades on one side. And and then the other side is this weird side. It's like uh, buildings or, or something like that, buildings for your farm. So all four sides of the card are used in this and you get to choose what you do with this card, whether it's going to be a wheelbarrow with what you're going to take or what kind of field it's going to be or what kind of upgrade. So very, very clever. It's, it's, it's really quite good. Uh, a part of it is area control with the board in the middle. So I, I always enjoy that. Um, and a little bit of a race to uh, complete some of the market items that are on the board. Um, the long and the short, though, is I think we all decided that it wasn't worth $80 to upgrade our copies. And I yeah. say that as yeah. a person that perpetually is FOMOing everything <laughs> on the planet. And uh, we. As a person who owns decided... multiple copies of multiple games. Yeah, yeah. Sad as that. Um, you didn't have to tell everybody that. And. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so we decided not to do it. So that was La Granja. Um, and then last night, I got to play Tekkenu again. Good, I was oh, actually, hoping you were going to bring it up. Yeah, yeah. So Tekkenu um, is a game by... It's the, the, the power duo of... Um, isn't it... Uh, Tashini and Luciani? Oh, yeah, so oh that's what games. it is, yeah. Yep, um, and it's is very very. I want to. I don't want to call it very very, but it's pretty heavy. Like a lot going on on the board. You're basically playing one of the Egyptian. Um, I don't know uh, what you describe them as, like um, builders, essentially, and you're trying to build the temples uh, to all the different gods. And it's it's really clever in that you have an obelisk. Um, in the center that kind of rotates around a set of dice. And wherever the obelisk rotates around, throws a certain shade on those dice. So with that, um, those dice will kind of shift around in what kind of dice they become. So if it's throwing shade out there, uh, it'll make some of the dice become pure and some of the dice become tainted, and some of the dice as forbidden. If it shifts again, then those dice will all shift around again. And based off of that is uh, like some of the action, like the god actions. I don't even want to try to explain this game. It took me about a half an hour to explain it last night. It's um, such a bizarre game, too, just with the obelisk. And it's just like, well, these dice are in the shade, so they're forbidden. And these dice are in the sun, yeah. so they're nice. It's yeah. like, okay. Well, it's the, the really clever part of it is, is as you take these dice, the dice correspond to the actions that you take. 
Um, So if you take it from one section, that's the action that you're going to take. But you take that die and you put it on your board. And on your board is a set of scales. And on that scales is you either have pure or tainted. And so what you're trying to do is balance the dice as well as the actions that you want to take. You're trying to balance the dice on your board so that way they come as close to equal as possible. Um, And then at the end of, let's say, two rounds, or actually I think it's uh, four rounds, you'll determine based off of how well you balanced your dice will be player order. And uh, player order is just massive in this game because if you're last, that means you're getting last choice of these dice, which corresponds with the actions out on the board. So it's it's really, really clever in that sort of sense. But um, yeah, I I like it overall. I like it better, I think, than um, Teotihuacan or Teotihuac. I don't know how you pronounce it correctly. Uh, but I think I like it a little bit better than that, but not better than Zolking. Um, Zolking, I find... That's a hard one to beat. Yeah, well, it's the pinnacle of elegance in, in games. It's one of those that just... Um, yeah, it's like the go-to for us to uh, play. So, so really enjoyed Takenu. Um, really fun to you know, like show it to people and, and teach them, and they really enjoyed it. But it's also one of those games that when you play it for the first time, you're going to get crushed because you don't understand how everything kind of connects together. And it's very, very... Um, the actions are very, very interdependent on each other and taking them in the right order. Um, in order to take the other actions. So, yeah, um, Takenu, fantastic. Takenu has something in it. Uh, I'm going to try and describe it. It's I haven't played it yet, yep. but uh, there's something that I like in games, which is you have a choice and you want one thing because you want to do it, but you want another thing because it satisfies this other condition that I really like. So in Takenu, it's I want to take this action but I also want to balance my scale and I have to pick which of those two I want to do more right now. So there is that trade-off in a lot of games and I think that is always an interesting decision space to figure out which one to take and when to take it. Yeah, and this does that really well, especially because the dice are the actions. Once all the dice are gone from an action space, that's it. That You cannot take an action there, except that like all good Euros, it mitigates that by allowing you, it gives you a, a mechanic where you do what's called a, um, oh gosh, uh, <laughs> basically it's an action that you turn into scribes and you, oh, it's an Anubis action. And so that allows you to take a die from anywhere out there and utilize it um, as any action you want to. However, of course, like when you do this, it doesn't go on your scales. It's got its own separate, because it's an Anubis action, it kind of goes off the board. So that gets really, really tricky when, well, you have these four dice that you're trying to balance. Suddenly, you get to do this great action, like separately, but then you have three dice now to balance your scales, because you had to take that one away from your scales. So it's got this really, really interesting balance between the actions you take and, um, yeah, what you, what you want to do with the balancing the scales. Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. Sweet. I will have to try it sometime. Yeah, for sure. I have just one more game to talk about. Um, 
it's not last night, two nights ago, Jessica and I went over to some friend's place and we played Codenames on the TV, which was better than I thought it was going to be. Um, and then we actually played a brief game of Blood on the Clock Tower. So I was the storyteller for this, of course, and there were six players with the basic set. Only Jessica had played this before, but a few others had played Mafia and Werewolves and all that. And it was a great time. Uh, everyone loved it, and cool stuff happened. And I am looking forward to the real game showing up some day, some year. So yeah, Blood on the Clock Tower. Uh, ben, why don't you tell us all about these great questions that we got from sure. one of our favorite listeners? Yeah, and uh, one of our favorite guests, uh, exactly. Patrick, gave us some questions. Uh, are we doing all of them, or are we just doing one of them? We are doing two of them. Two of them, okay. Uh, do you have a specific... Yeah. I knew which one I was planning on doing. Yes, I have do a specific two. Do you have one that you two. were planning all right. So the first one is, and we kind of already said this, asked Ron, but I think it's a little different. Um, what was your favorite game when you were first immersed in the hobby, and where is it ranked now? So, Ben, what's your answer to yeah. that? Uh, well, the one that really got me into gaming as it stands right now is uh, Scythe. Scythe was like the game that I saw that I had to have. And as is tradition with me, I bought it from Boardlandia at $85 because it was between print runs that I did not know about. And then two weeks later, it came back to normal print runs and was $50. So that sounds about right for how things go for me. That um, happened to me with Great Zimbabwe, and that was out of print for four years. So yeah. I know how that feels. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, the worst, just a really quick aside, but the worst one for me by far was um, Mythic Battles Pantheon. I, uh, I, bought, <laughs> I bought Mythic Battles Pantheon um, all on eBay, like all secondhand on eBay, and it was like, over a thousand dollars or something, and then the uh, the a week later after I got all of it delivered to me, they announced the reprint campaign, where it was like four hundred fifty to five hundred dollars for everything that I just bought. Ron, don't so, you, have you know, I, I do. And, and I, shrink. I heard. I and shrink. So Ben, I heard you tell you know tell that story, and I was like, man, I wish I would have put mine up for sale. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's literally in shrink and I'm, I'm, I'm really sad about it. Oh my God. Open it up, man. I want to play it so bad, but then I'm like, uh, I don't know. It takes up so much space, all that stuff. I narrowed it down to two Calax cubes with a 3d printed. (laughs) Narrowed it down to two Calax cubes. (laughs) But yeah. Okay. So back to the question though. Scythe. Let's see. I actually, I just did my rankings again recently i know we discussed this so for me scythe is now according to my ranking scale is now 28th in my top 50 games so now the thing with scythe and ron to your point earlier about like 
shelf space and, and things like that. Sometimes I find that there are games that I like, obviously as, as you progress with different games, you want to, you know, get rid of ones that kind of move down, move down the list. I would at this point probably sell Scythe if it were even remotely possible for me to sell my copy of Scythe. The problem is I got it painted. I got all the metal mechs. I got all the inserts. The amount of money that I would have to sell this game for, for me to even want to get rid of it, nobody's going to pay. Yeah. So I could never get rid of this game, which is fine because I do enjoy it. I want to play it more than I do, but I would literally never be able to get rid of this game. So... Yeah, but now it's 28. But that was number one for a while. Was psyched, so, yeah. All right, over to you, Ron. Uh, the one that really hooked me, um, I would say, would be, oh gosh, between... I really enjoyed Agricola. Um, and I know that's kind of a pat answer, but I, I enjoy punishing games. And I'd never played a game that really kind of kept you so accountable for your actions. Like you really had to be thoughtful about how you do things in Agricola. And it's, it can be very, you know, if you played, you know, how punishing it can be to feed your workers and stuff. So I'd say that one was maybe one of the number ones that really hooked me into it. And that, and I, and I know again, another, um, generic answer but uh twilight struggle just captured both my wife and i's imagination my goodness like this a, a game that could simulate the cold war with such accuracy and elegance in, in a simple setting you know of, of two and a half three hours like it, it really just immerse you in the entire the entire game it didn't matter if you were playing russia or the u.s but struggling over the earth and, and trying to influence, you know, these countries and stuff like that just really captured us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those are the, definitely, I'd say about a tie between those two. Yeah. I have a similar thing. So I kind of first really dove into the hobby in college and that was playing Avalon with a bunch of friends. So the resistance Avalon, a social deduction game. And I, I, Loved it. It was fantastic. Uh, when we lived in Korea, we played it all the time as well. And uh, while I would say that I have no qualms get, getting rid of Avalon now, the reason for that is because it lives on in Blood on the Clock Tower. So Avalon really got me into the hobby, and I really loved that game. And the only reason I don't feel the need for it anymore is because it has been replaced by Blood on the Clock Tower, which I think is just the perfect social deduction game. Um, It is, in fact, because I just did this ranking thing recently as well. We're doing uh, me, Ben, Patrick, Greg are doing our top 50 games, and we're going to compile a great list of the top like 10 or 20 of the aggregate and talk about all of those. So that's why we know our top uh, games right now. Anyway, Blood on the Clock Tower is my number two game right now. And uh, I really like it a lot. And it beat out things like uh, Gaia Project and Bus. And I think it only did that because if I have the opportunity 
to play it. I just, I really want to take advantage of it. You know, if you have eight people or 10 people, it's just fantastic. So that is where it stands, where Avalon stands. It just, uh, I am thrilled to have Avalon's grandchild, which is Blood on the Clock Tower. And then the second game that really got me into the hobby, uh, when we were in Korea, I found this little game called Food Chain Magnate. And uh, as everyone knows, I still love that game quite a fair bit. It is my number one game. I do not ever see it leaving that spot. And that's, that's where fair. I stand. What's, yeah. what's my number one game? I, wow. I, yeah, Twilight Struggle stayed top 20 for me. Agricola, not so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't have a yeah. number one game. How sad is that? No? No. It's not that sad. You have a rotating games that you love to play. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but I, 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 I don't like to quantify it. I mean, it's it would be hard right. like to quantify a social deduction game against a like like putting That's food chain magnet next to a social de- deduction game just blows my mind. Like my brain starts to ooze out. Yeah. I, I, don't I guess know. for me, it's more of a if someone were to put two games on a table, which one would I rather play? type of thing yeah. and i know that that's kind of the same thing but like for me if someone were to put food chain magnate and blood on the clock tower next to each other on the table i would probably choose food chain magnate like even if like i mean obviously it depends on the night but like for me if someone if someone put down you know mythic battles pantheon or tracarian i'd probably pick tracarian you know that's that's how i ranked it when i was doing my rankings it was when i when the two pictures came up if someone put them down on the table which one would i rather play and that's how i did it so. yeah that makes sense yeah yeah, there's this great uh, website, Pub Meeple, where you can put in your board games and it just does a bunch of comparisons and you can just hit right arrow or left arrow to say which one you like better and then it puts it out into a list for you. Yep. So that's what we did. And, you know, I the only game that I really firmly feel is in a numbered spot is Food Chain Magnate. You know, after that, there's so much movement between like numbers two through ten that you know whatever. So, yeah. But we will talk about that more in a couple weeks. Yeah. So we have the next question, which is, what is the single coolest board game component you have ever seen? And I have the personal caveat on this: it cannot be something you bought after the fact. So, for instance. <laughs> While I love Ooh. the pieces that I have for dominant species, I would not put those <clears throat> into this conversation. And with that in mind, uh, just a good example of one that I really like, this is maybe not my favorite, I'm just going to say it though, is the gears in Sulkin. Because that is just such a cool part of the game. It comes with the game it is integral to the playing of the game and it also explains the mechanism and everything so well so it's definitely one of the coolest ones i've ever seen okay well for me not counting add-ons from kickstarter either because if i was going to count add-ons from kickstarter i would say and i don't even have it yet but that uh, veiled fate wooden board that i added on that would probably mm. be it. See, uh, I'm I also think... not counting Crokinole. 
Well, where is even the component to that? <laughs> the game well, exactly. Itself? For me, it is the magnetic uh, market board in. Oh, that Merchants was so cool! Road. I was hoping you would bring that up. Yeah, there's literally a magnet in the piece of the board, and the yeah, and the market dial that you can rotate yeah. snaps onto the board magnetically, yeah. and then you can rotate it. It yeah. was. I didn't know. I was like, how am I supposed to put this on? There's no, like, none of those, like, little through punches. And then it was like, attach the magnetic. I'm like, wait, what? And then I put it down and it, like, went and snapped onto the board. I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. So that's. Yeah, Ben sent us a video of him, like, sliding it across the board and then it shoots up to the right spot and sits there, which is really sweet. uh, Wow. Have you played it? Did you like it? Yeah, I I played it one time. I want to play it again. I think I liked it but I have some potential house rules for it when I play next, but we'll, yeah, we'll see when I play it again, but I would like to play it again. Fair enough. Um, I had to question. So you, you bring this up and you talk about components and that was interesting because immediately Zolkin came to mind, but is that a component or like a mechanism of the game? Cause it kind of does both. Right. Um, uh, yeah. So I was curious about what we're defining as components, but I, I think I, I see where you're going here. Um, I have to second the, um, Zulking because I have a beautiful painted, uh, wheel and God, it's beautiful. And, um, yeah. Okay. Well then I'm going to move on and I can't use add-ons. I was going to do the war of the ring. My add-ons, like I have all the strongholds you're, painted. You're not, you're not allowed to talk about okay. War of the Ring at <laughs> all. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, you should fly out and come, and we'll play yeah, it because one, I've never played it. Please do. All right. There's your invitation, Ben. <sighs> okay, um, fine. I'll, I mean, I'll, come I'll visit the Mecca. Day. This is Portland. We. This is yeah. what we do. Um, boy, I have a couple, but I'm gonna Let's go come. with. Uh, all right, real quick, ships in container, I think are so much fun to play with. I love you know going around with the little ships on the board, especially when I have the blue like ocean mat out. I get to play with them. Um, the Pax Premier map, I think mm-hmm. is the the parchment map is just beautiful, and those blocks are beautiful. Um, I. Don't play much in the way of miniatures, but by God, I love like playing around with the little X-Wing miniatures. So I think those components are super fun. I mean, there's nothing more fun to seeing a little TIE fighter and an X-Wing and a Millennial Falcon chasing each other on your table. Um, and lastly, I bought a copy of the 1999 version of Acquire. And I thought those are really cool uh, components for that. That was the deluxe edition back in the day that they had for acquire and uh it's just a really cool version of it with really cool components yeah they're what is it the tiles or the yeah it's the plastic kind of board and tiles that and so that they fit onto like when you put the um, plastic piece onto the board it just stays versus all the cardboard that you know in the recent edition that they have like they really cheapened the uh acquire edition that came up sounds like it was a really good copy to acquire Ooh! stop that was good <laughs> um your mention of pax Pamir, uh 
reminds me of Tokyo Metro. Uh, I I have mixed feelings on that map just because it's so folded up that you know it's like almost hard to use. But I really like the idea behind making a game based on a subway system and then you lay out this giant map and it is that subway system and you're moving the subways i mean they're just little cylinders but you're moving the trains along the uh, tracks and your little guy can hop on and i just think it's a great marriage of theme and and uh, components that one is really fantastic. I, I'm going to get that one printed out on neoprene and like blown up because yeah. I really want to play it more, but that map actually drives me crazy with the so, little um, stock track. Right. We have to play the expansion map because I much, much prefer the expansion map. Well, now you I have think it. it fixes a few things. Yeah. That'd be amazing. Any other components, Ben? Nope, I'm good. I mean, all of mine are miniatures, so. Right, and painted. Yeah. Kingdom Death Monster painted miniatures, when they come we back could, to me, are going to be... We could talk, like, invite me on for painted for a painted day. We'll talk about painted stuff, because I have a bunch of painted yeah. stuff, too. That's super fun. Let's do it. Yeah. All right, All right, that does that, it for well, this we, week's episode. <laughs> Go for it, Ben. <laughs> we're both doing it. No, that does it for this week's episode of Jonah and Ben Play Board Games with Friends. Ron, it was very nice to virtually meet you. I'll have to take you up on that invite to come and crack open this War of the Ring copy that I've been trying to find for probably three years now. So just, I'm going to bring a big enough suitcase. Just don't know when it goes missing <laughs> that it's, it wasn't me. Um, but yeah, thank you for joining. And I'm looking forward to playing some games in the future. That'd be cool. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. Jonah, yeah, it's all right. That's been good. And thanks That's, to Luke. It's been fine. <laughs> thanks That's to what Luke. Ron says every time I leave his house on a Saturday night. Jonah, it's... Uh... Yeah. yeah. That's how we all feel. So. <laughs> and then Louisa, thank you for the great music throughout. <laughs>